Amen. So our passage um, this morning begins yet again with Jesus in the temple. Remember the context, right? Jesus enters into Jerusalem, being worshipped and acclaimed as king uh, by all the masses. He then proceeds into the temple, cleanses it, and then last week there's this ongoing confrontation with the leaders of the nation. Again, we find Jesus still in the temple teaching. And in the temple, he observes the masses pouring in for the feast of Passover, paying their respects and putting their gifts, that is, their tithes, into the temple treasury. Now, ancient sources tell us that there were 13 rather large depositories shaped to resemble something like a ram's horn. And in the people would come and drop in their gifts into these depositories. Now, because a widow makes this donation, we know that these depositories were in the precinct of the temple called the Court of Women. So men were allowed to go uh, one degree closer to the Holy of Holies, the priests still another degree closer, and then the high priest would actually get to go into the Holy, Holy of Holies, but that only once a year. So there is Jesus in the court observing the people. The rich are putting in their tithes, probably making a show of it. And in comes a widow, a poor widow. And all she has to give are two copper coins, mites, according to the older translations, and leptas, according to the original. Now in today's value, what this poor widow puts into the depository is in value less than pennies. She drops into the temple treasury almost a worthless amount of money, right? At least compared to what the rich were dealing in. Yet, Jesus sees her and he singles her out. Not as a bad example, but as a commendable one. Verse 3, our text reads, Truly I say to you that this poor widow put in more than all of them, for they... For out of their surplus put into the offering, but she out of her poverty put all that she had to live on. The rich, Jesus says, give from their abundance, meaning meaning that it does not cost them. A little bit off the top is not too big a deal, but the widow, in contrast, she gives all that she has the very substance of her livelihood. And Jesus says that the two mites, the little copper coins that she puts in, outweigh everything that the rich gave. Because what matters is not necessarily what we give, but how it is given. I will not offer to the Lord my God, said King David, that which cost me nothing. A true offering does not come on our part from ease and comfortability, but rather from our best, that which costs us. As the scripture says in Malachi chapter 1, verses 8 and 11, this is the Lord speaking, But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? 
Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord God of hosts? From the rising of the sun even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. God is not concerned about numbers. He's not concerned about the zeros on a check, but the heart. A negligible offering given in sincerity and devotion is greater than vast sums given in hypocrisy. His name is great, and what matters is that we honor it accordingly with whatever we have. It doesn't matter. But we also learn then that our offering is an act of worship. It's not so much about keeping the lights on, or funding our building projects, or paying my salary. Thank you for that, though. It's about honoring God. That's what our offering is about. Giving back to Him what He has graciously given to us. So in to the treasury, the poor widow puts in her two mites, and she gives more than everyone. But, crucially, there is something more going on in this passage. Jesus is commenting on the widow's devotion, but he's also commenting upon the temple, which had become, remember, a den of robbers. Remember how our chapter ended last week. Jesus says now in verse 46 of chapter 20, pay attention here, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, who love respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogue in places of honor at the banquets. Now listen, who devour widows' houses and for appearance sake um, offer long prayers. These, Jesus says, will receive a greater condemnation. So Israel's leadership is condemned as those who are doing it for show, but also as those who devour widows' houses. The widow drops in her very last cent into the treasury, and while she is commended for her actions, those very same actions are a condemnation against the temple. Because there, her livelihood is devoured by greedy scribes who drain from her every last drop. The temple has become a den of robbers, a shelter for proud and corrupt men, and a means of oppression against the most vulnerable. Now what she did was honorable and noble and worthy and great devotion to the Lord, but she should have been cared for. Thus the scripture says, the days of the temple are numbered. Listen to Proverbs chapter fifteen twenty five. The Lord will tear down the house of the proud, but he will establish the boundary of the widow. Now the next episode makes that abundantly clear. And we should be careful then about how we interpret this passage. Or rather, more accurately, how churches can use it to justify oppression. Right, giving to the very last drop so that we can adorn the temple. But notice, verse 5 now. And while some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, where did they get all that from? He said, as for these things which you are looking at, the days will come, 
in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. So the crowd looks upon the temple and they see beauty. But Jesus sees a cause for judgment. Its beauty is for show, like the scribes who populate it. They, Jesus says, like to walk around in long robes. They love respectful greetings in the marketplace, meaning deference and people coming and showing them special treatment. And he says they love places of honor at the banquets. And the temple, right, this beautiful, opulent temple, greater than anything that we could even imagine, is the supreme symbol of their status. It's another long robe, right? It's another respectful greeting at the marketplace. And like them, the temple, it presents a beautiful outward appearance, but inside, it's marred with greed and oppression. Jesus drives out all the merchandise, all the animals. He turns over the tables of the money changers and he dumps out their depositories. And he says, don't turn my father's house, what, into a house of merchandise. So there is no beauty, inward beauty, rather. Thus, the temple is set to be torn down, Jesus says, not one stone left upon another. Now, Jesus makes an exceedingly radical claim here. In fact, we find in the Gospels that part of the accusation made against him in his crucifixion was that he was going to tear down this temple, right? This is very, very radical language, and it rightly prompts questions. So those standing by, overhearing Jesus' words, say, Teacher, when will these things happen? When is this temple going to be destroyed? So Jesus goes on to answer their questions about the destruction of the temple, and before that time comes, to prepare his disciples for it. And so he begins by saying that imposter messiahs will come and they will say that I am he and that the time is near. But he tells the disciples, you've been warned, don't go after them. And we know according to history, Josephus, who is our main source for the time, um, he tells us that Jesus' words were proved true in his book, the history of the destruction of Jerusalem. And all who these false messiahs in one way or another promised that God was going to save the temple and that he was going to rescue his people. They were before the destruction of the temple and even after. But Jesus goes on to say more. There will be wars and disturbances. Nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And beside that, in the human sphere, or beside the human sphere rather, in the natural sphere, there will be earthquakes and plagues and famines. And moreover, there will be great terrors and signs from heaven. Again, Josephus, he recounts these things happening just before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Now, the Romans began their assault against the city of Jerusalem long before that. And while that was happening, a fervor began to develop among the people. But Josephus writes of a star, he says, resembling a sword which stood over the city. And he says there was a comet that remained for a whole year. 
He also says that a heifer, as she was being led by the high priest to be sacrificed, so into the temple, he says that it brought forth a lamb in the midst of the temple. And he also says that as the high priests were going by night into the inner temple to perform their sacred duties, that the, the high priest reported they felt a quaking and heard a great noise. And after that, they heard the sound as of a, mul- a great multitude saying, let us remove hence. So these great signs will come before the destruction of the temple, Jesus says, but before them, the disciples will be persecuted. For his name, they will be excommunicated from the synagogues. They will be brought before rulers and governors. They'll be thrown into prison and even, he says, executed. And it will come not only from the hands of strangers, but family and friends. You will be hated by all, Jesus says, because of my name. And he goes on telling them not to be prepared beforehand to defend yourselves. He says, because I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. So just as Jesus silenced those who put him in the theological crosshairs as we saw last week, so too will his disciples by virtue of the wisdom that he provides them. Stephen, uh, the first martyr of the church, comes to mind. The leading men of Jerusalem rose up against him condemning and accusing him falsely, saying what? That he was speaking against the temple. But the scripture says that in debate, they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And so, like the Lord, he was murdered in cold blood. But someone, someone in the crowd that day who participated in Stephen's murder heard the utterance that was given to him. It was Saul of Tarsus who later became the Apostle Paul. So Jesus says, don't prepare, trust in me to give you speech. But then he goes on to describe the actual destruction of Jerusalem with astonishing accuracy. He says, when you see it surrounded by armies, recognize that her desolation is near. Now in the month of Nisan, that would be our month of March, 70 A.D., That happened. The Roman armies encamped around the city. They trapped all of the citizens and visitors inside. Again, it was Passover during that time. So hundreds and thousands of people were flooding into the city. And then they circled it off. Cutting the entire population off from any resources and starving them to death. Josephus tells us of Horrific, horrific things that happened in Jerusalem while people were dying for food. Thus, to those inside the city, Jesus says, flee to the mountains. And to those outside the city, he says, do not enter. And then he says, many will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And in total... Somewhere around 1.1 million people died in the siege of Jerusalem, and somewhere around 100,000 people were enslaved, just like Jesus said would happen. Now, Jesus has still more to say. From verse 25 onward, 
But here in the following verses, his words are harder to interpret. In fact, this passage, with its counterparts in Mark and Matthew, are some of the most contested grounds in all of biblical interpretation. And the question is, does Jesus still speak about the destruction of Jerusalem or something else, his return? And if so, how so? Do the two events, the destruction of Jerusalem and the return of Christ, map on to one another? Or is there some unspoken transition from one event to the next? Or is it deeper and there's still a more profound spiritual reading? Well, we're presented with a dilemma to which there is no obvious answer. Now, from our vantage, there are two competing views on this passage, the Olivet Discourse. Now, the first is that there's an unspoken transition um, between verses 24 and 25, which is to say that Jesus leaves behind the destruction of Jerusalem and begins to speak about the end, his return. And this view has much to commend it. Primarily, it's reading of verse 27. You can see it there in your Bibles. It says, They will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now that sounds like something that will happen at the end, and not something that happened at the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And moreover, verse uh, 35 says that it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of the earth. Now though the destruction of Jerusalem was horrific in scale, it was nevertheless a local event. Now, that's a very short summary, but it gets the idea across. Now, the second view, it doesn't recognize any transition um, from one event to the next, but maintains that the whole passage is about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Now, that argument is made on two grounds, both of them also convincing. The first is its reading of verse 32, You can look in your Bibles, which says, This generation will not pass away until all all things rather take place. All these things take place. Now, those words um, are taken at face value. This generation means this generation, namely those whom Jesus addressed, and not some distant generation um, prior or however that's read. So that's a strength. And moreover, Also, the reference to the Son of Man coming on a cloud, they point out that that's a direct quotation from Daniel chapter 7, and it is. You'll find a footnote there in your Bible. There in Daniel chapter 7, it's not about the Son of Man coming down from heaven. Rather, it's about the Son of Man ascending into heaven. And as he ascends into heaven, he's seated beside God to receive power and dominion and glory. So this reference to Daniel chapter 7, they say, it's not about his return, but about his enthronement. It's about the stone which the builders rejected being vindicated to become the chief cornerstone. So, between those two views and many others that seem to populate the middle, there remains a division of interpretation. But, We should expect that kind of thing from the scriptures. The proverb says that it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, that is, to bury it in obscurity. But, it goes on, the glory of kings is to search out 
a matter. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter, and it's the glory of kings to search out a matter. It's not good for us that everything is always plain and evident, because then we do not wrestle, nor do we grow with the Scriptures. In searching out matters that God has hidden, our minds are transformed. We work at it and work at it and work at it until ultimately up here is changed. And that's to our glory, the proverb says. Now, if you expect me to resolve these difficulties, you're wrong. Uh, We can have that conversation um, some other time. Over a cup of strong coffee. But right now, um, I want to bypass all that. Leave you to wrestle with that. Because our aim is to discern the meaning of this passage for us. And whether this passage is about one event or the other, how it applies to us is oh so clear. So let's consider Jesus' words of instruction. Now look at verse 34 through 36, and we'll spend the rest of our time together here. It says, Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that day will not come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of the earth. But, Jesus says, keep on alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So when the day comes, we are to remember that we are of the day. The Lord instructs us to be on guard so that our hearts will not be weighted down. Now that phrase, weighted down, is an interesting one. It means to be burdened, or it means simply to be overcome with sleep. And I think it's in that latter sense in which we are supposed to take it. We are to be on guard. We are to keep on alert at all times, Jesus says, because the danger for every single one of us, is that we drift off into sleep. Remember the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus told them just moments before he was going to be taken by the Roman guard and put on trial and ultimately crucified. He told them to pray and watch lest what? They enter into temptation. And he went off to pray, and came back three times to find them each time fast asleep. And that same word is used, weighted down. They were asleep. Now at night, that's what people do. We sleep. That's normal. But, Jesus says, the rest of the scripture also says, not for us. It's normal for other people, but it's not normal for The church. We are of the day, not of the night. And rather than sleeping through the night, that is becoming distracted and losing focus, being weighted down in our lives, we are rather to keep awake and we are to keep alert. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 4 and 6. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all, what, sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, 
but let us be alert and sober. Now, what is the night? What is the day? The night is this present evil age, this world dominated by the spiritual forces of darkness. The day that comes with Jesus Christ is the age to come, the world which Peter says in righteousness dwells. And who are we? To what do we belong, to the day or to the night? We belong to the day. This nighttime world and which we currently inhabit is so much dreams and illusions and fantasies, but the daytime world that is to come is our true home. It's our true resting place. Jesus says, the Apostle Paul says, we are not to be weighted down in this age because we're not of it. We are children of light and of day. Now, there was a woman with some form of chronic physical suffering. And she wrote once to C.S. Lewis, who was notorious about writing back to those who wrote to him. And she asked for some comfort and advice about her condition, right? Chronic, all of her life. And, And this was what he wrote to her in return. He says, think of yourself as a seed, patiently waiting in the earth, waiting to come up a flower in the gardener's good time. Up, he says, into the real world, the real waking. I suppose that our whole present life, look back from there, will seem only a drowsy half-waking. We are here, he says, in the land of dreams, but the cock crow is coming. This land of dreams, brothers and sisters, is not our home. We are the seed planted in the earth, waiting to come up in the gardener's good time. And this world's pleasures and promises seem real and substantial, but they're a mirage more empty than smoke. You reach out to grab them and they're not there. The world to come, the world yet to come, is the real world. That is where we are from. We are children of day and children of light. Therefore, let us not forget who we are, where our home is. Be on guard, the Lord says. Keep watching. Do not be lulled into sleep. And when we forget who we are, when we forget who we come from or where we come from and what our destiny is, then and only then can our hearts become weighted down. When we forget who we are, then this daytime world to come, it begins to seem like a distant dream. It begins to feel illusory and fake, like it's not real. And this nighttime world begins to seem like the only real and substantial thing. Isn't any surprise then, right, when we forget that we find ourselves caught up in the deeds of darkness, when we find ourselves drifting off into sleep, We must remember that we are of the day. We must remember its warm and welcoming rays because there is our life, not here. Again, listen to what the Apostle says. 
This is Colossians chapter 3, verses 2 and 4. Set your minds, he says, on things above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, listen, and your life, your life, who you are, your very everything is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. Christ, who is our life. And so may Christ then provide us with grace to shake free from our drowsiness and to remember that he and he alone is our life. So what does it mean to be weighted down in the night? What does it mean when Jesus tells us to keep watch and instead to fall asleep? It means, he says, to be consumed with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of life. It's these things that we are to be on guard against. Now, dissipation really gets the idea across, but it's better rendered by an older translation which which, uh, reads, sure-fitting. Now, that word means an intemperate or an immoderate indulgence in something, such as food or drink. So dissipation, uh, sure-fitting, a immoderate or intemperate indulgence in something. Now, a biblical example of dissipation uh, might be the prodigal son, who says to his father, give me my portion of the inheritance, and goes away to a distant country, and there, the scripture says, squandered his estate in loose living. His was a life of dissipation, of excess, of waste. And so when Jesus warns us against dissipation, what he's warning of is overindulging ourselves in bodily pleasure. He warns of overindulging ourselves in bodily pleasure. Now the body, the body's pleasure, um, pleasures rather, are good and they're not bad. God made the body, but The body is corrupted and it's mortal. The body and its pleasures has a way of pulling us down. And it has a way of dulling our desires for heavenly things. So listen to how the Apostle Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, For indeed, while we are in this tent, he's referring to our current earthly bodies, while we're in this tent, we groan. He says, being burdened. There's our word again. Because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So this tent, that is our earthly bodies, are a burden upon the spirit. Again, the body is good, right? We're not arguing for some sort of anti-material position here. But again, what we're saying is, what we're regarding from the scriptures is that the body is corrupted. The heavy and oppressive tug of the flesh that pulls us downward is what we're talking about. And so we groan for a new one in which this mortal body will be swallowed up in immortality. But until then, until Christ returns and we are transformed in the twinkling of an eye, until then, the body is the site of conflict 
Its passions war against the Spirit, and they must be controlled. As the Scripture says, Romans chapter 6, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. So there's a certain temperance and moderation that we need to have about ourselves in order to keep awake. All things are lawful, the Scripture says, but not all things are edifying. And in giving ourselves over to sensual dissipation in its many forms, we brutalize and dehumanize and then ultimately deaden the spirit. We lose our desire, even the ability to take pleasure in heavenly things because we're so satisfied on earthly things. The spirit is weighed down and it has a hard time ascending to love and to desire what it should. And then we cannot be bothered to lift a finger in anything relating to the Lord or to his purposes. And that is when the day overtakes us like a thief. So what then? Well, the Lord says, stay awake. Dissipation is the problem and restraint is the solution. Again, 1 Peter chapter 1, or rather chapter 2, he says, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul, right? Which wage war against the soul, abstain from them. So what is needed to unburden our hearts is the grace of self-discipline. To put away the phone, to put off the TV, to put down our work or whatever it is, and to cultivate the life of the Spirit. The body is not for dissipation, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body, 1 Corinthians 6. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. You are not your own. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So beside dissipation is that drunkenness, and besides drunkenness, the worries of this life. One communicates the idea of stupor, and the other preoccupation. These two are manners of being swept up into the night. One is completely unaware, drunk, and the other is hyper-aware, but of the wrong things. One is a person who is so heedless about the things of the Spirit, so dulled and desensitized that they hardly know they have a Spirit. And one is the person who is so anxious and occupied with bills and food and plans and whatever else that they have room for nothing else in their heart. Jesus says, you're being weighed down. One of them needs smelling salts and the other needs a chill pill. One needs to put down the glass and the other their worries. And both of them need to sit at the feet of Jesus. So we conclude then with the Lord's double exhortation. Be on guard and keep on alert at all times. And what he intends there is that we would be attentive to our condition aware of when our hearts are in danger of being weighed down. Because when we don't keep watch, when we don't stand guard, that's when the enemy at an opportune time comes for us, who looks for someone to devour. And again, this was the disciples' great failure in the garden. While the Lord wrestled in prayer, 
the disciples were snoring, but a few paces away. And he says to them, as he says to us, be on guard. We must not let ourselves become dulled, anesthetized by the things of the world. And he says to be on guard is to be in prayer. Keep on alert, praying that you may have strength to escape. So to be on guard is to be in prayer. Sun rays from the day break into this nighttime world in prayer. There in the secret place we commune with Christ who is our life. There we draw strength to put on the armor of light and to put off the deeds of darkness. There our vision is heightened so we can see through this world ensconced in darkness to the day to come. There we are awake. There we are on guard. There we are truly ourselves. So the Lord says, remember who you are. Keep watch and pray. Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. Do this, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone. The day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Let's pray.